Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So I have two things to say before we begin, because we're talking today about how we treat people who are terminally ill um, and what percentage of the cost of medical care it makes up, stuff like that. But um, And we're going to be talking about this in, on a much more human scale, too, which I, I think is really important. And so to that end, I have to say two things. One of them is so th- here at the station, uh, when you go to the bathroom, you go into the, either the men's or women's room, the, the radio, the station's on. We don't have it like on in the newsroom all the time because we're trying to get work done, but you go into the bathroom and the radio's on. So if I go to the bathroom right before the show, which I typically do, this could be too much information, um, uh, fresh air is usually on. And um, this is not the first time this has happened, but today I was in there and I could tell they were re-airing an interview with somebody. And the more that the person talked, the more I realized who it was. It's a cabaret singer whose work I have really loved over the years. And then I thought, oh, my God, she's dead. Uh, And that actually turned out to be the case. That is not the first time I've walked into the bathroom, heard fresh air, which is something they do, obviously. They re-air some of their old interviews after people die. And that's like how I've been informed about the death of people whose work anyway I've uh, really enjoyed. So that's the first thing I wanted to tell you. The second thing I wanted to tell you is that this topic today, for some reason, has turned into something that I give speeches about. Um, And so I I spoke about it last year to the Connecticut Hospital Association. I'm speaking in in Texas uh, later this year about I have no idea how this happened. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me that it but it it has happened. And I get paid for these speeches and I just think transparency is important. So I I don't feel like that's really changed any of my thinking about this uh, at all, but I just wanted you to know that. All right. So, what are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about that fact, that idea that in some ways maybe we haven't very well codified or understood how we take care of people who are dying and who have essentially no chance of reversing the process of dying, reversing the slide towards death that they're already in. And a large percentage of our healthcare dollars are spent on that, although it kind of depends on how you count the dollars. Uh, and it's certainly the case that, well, 5% of all Medicare patients uh, die per year, and they spend almost 30% of the Medicare budget. Um, Medicare patients who, who die spend about six times more in their last year of life than those who do not. It's about $25,000 per the person who's dying compared with about $4,000 spent per year by the Medicare patients who do not die. Uh, But you can look at it a lot of other ways, too. Um, And and as a percentage of the entire amount of medical medical care dollars spent in the United States, spending on the last year of life is maybe not quite so dramatic. But um, first of all, I should say that we have great guests here today. We have all kinds of people that you will be very interested in hearing from, but we wouldn't dream of trying to do this show without Elizabeth Rosenthal. She's the author of An American Sickness. We've done a show with her before, subtitled How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. If there's one book you need to read to try to understand the immensely complicated subject 
of medical care in America and how it gets paid for and who pays for it, this is the book you read. Um, I've given it to people. I've made people buy it. Um, it's really good. Um, so, she, Elizabeth, you're going to get us started here. And, and so I threw out some numbers here uh, here at the beginning. You probably have your own numbers. I mean, what, what's what's an important way to think about this question of how to take care of people who are, let's say, in their final year of life? I think it's an important question both for individuals and for society. The issue really is, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, no, we spend too much at the end of life. And we have to differentiate between useful treatment and not useful treatment. At some level, when people say, oh, my gosh, we spend 10 percent of, a, you know, 10 percent of your medical care will be in, in your last month of life. Part of me thinks, well, that's kind of rational. I'm likely to be really sick then, and maybe I was having, you know, a treatment that could have worked, but it didn't. I think where where we have trouble and really where we have to focus is not on the absolute number, but the useless things we do to people who we know are dying who won't benefit from those things. I mean, I'm always astounded by statistics like um, the the 20% of women with severe cognitive impairment are getting regular mammograms. People in their 80s and 90s are still being referred for colonoscopies, even though that's not recommended. And P.S., even though you know, that preparation may kill them. They could fall and, and, and break a hip, you know. So we are, you know, sometimes spending at the end of life makes a lot of sense. It's, a, it's an effort that might work. But so often what we're doing at the end of life is such, just kind of our native reaction in this country, both as patients and as physicians, which is we got to do something. We're going to do the test. We're going to, you know, we can't let go. And and uh, I think we really have to think that, particularly um, uh, surrounding diseases where we know, um, you know, acceptance of death and helping people approach that may be the better course of action. Right. And as long as you're talking about mammograms and colonoscopies, I think we can throw prostate cancer in there. I yep. don't think there's any Absolutely. question that it's overdiagnosed and it's overtreated uh, and in ways that uh, don't take into account some of the the negative impacts uh, of the treatment that people get as opposed to any benefit that they could conceivably realize over whatever lifespan they have left. I mean, that, and, and some of it is just, as you're implying, I think, Elizabeth, if we have the diagnostic tools and and we have treatments, we're sort of not in the habit as a society and as a, as a medical culture uh, of saying, yeah, but we're not going to do that. Well, you know, we're Americans. We believe in taking action, right? Okay. We're not going to accept. We're going we're gonna to overcome. It's that pioneering spirit, which I, I think is, is sorely misplaced in a lot of these cases. Um, there's also the issue in this country, which is pretty unique to this country, that the more you do, the more you get paid. So we have both the societal impulses to, I want everything done. Uh, you know, we have a, a, a proton beam accelerator, so we're going to use it. And there's the fact that you get paid more for acting that way. And I think for many people in the medical system, it's often hard to disentangle those two motivations. You know, we like to say, okay, if you set up your office, if you're an ophthalmologist and you set up your office to do Mohs surgery, I'm sorry, if you're a dermatologist and you set up your office to do Mohs surgery, which is a, a complex treatment for basal cell uh, carcinomas, which are, you know, a non-invasive form of cancer, non-malignant form of cancer, um, then you're going to do it. You bought the equipment. You've trained to do it. Uh, you get a lot more money for doing it. So there's going to be a kind of 
conveyor belt you get on. You know, and when I was in medical school, we used to say, if you go to Midas, you get a muffler. But I think the other version of that is, you know, if you're if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So it's part of the system, but it's also what patients expect in this country. And that's where I hold us patients accountable, too, because, you know, my mom can go to the doctor and I'll hear from her and she'll say, oh, you know, it was a really good visit, but she didn't even draw any blood tests. Mm -hmm. You know, we want stuff done. If our knee hurts, we want an MRI to know why does it hurt instead of saying, which is the medically right thing to do, usually, Let's wait six weeks and see see if it gets better on its own. That's exactly where I was going to go next. There's a, there's a notion. It, it, I mean, we shouldn't necessarily paint the entire medical profession as you know blindly interventionist. Uh, you, in addition to everything I said at the beginning, are also a medical doctor. You were taught about something called watchful waiting. That's exactly right. what you just described, right? Right. I mean, you know, we, we know, for example, that with back pain, the right thing to, thing to do is to give people some pain medicines, non-steroidals, and wait six weeks. But we know often that that doesn't happen, that people were referred for x-rays, for MRIs, we jumped to surgery, um, and, and none of those things are helpful. But why? Well, it's partly because if you go to a doctor and you're in pain, you know, our, our, what we're, we're primed to, to want something done. I mean, particularly if you're paying, you know, you have a high deductible plan and you're paying $500 for the visit. You don't really want to be told, and eh, we're just going to wait and see what happens and come back in six weeks. You can pay another $500. So, you know, everything kind of conspires to um, aid and abet this tendency to want to test, want to do a procedure, want to uh, get an answer. We don't like the uncertainty of watchful waiting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have a, uh, a saying which I made up based on something my doctor said. Uh, my saying is uh, most problems resolve themselves except the last one. Um, so um, <laughs> well, that resolves itself too, kind of. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, so, um, so yeah. And the uh, the other big problem for the end of life people is sometimes they're not really in a good position to make a decision themselves. And so th there's something called the acute physiology and chronic health evalu evaluation, or Apache, uh, and mm -hmm. um, it's a scoring system. Uh, and they can give, uh, for example, 95% odds that a patient will die in an intensive care unit. Uh, and the idea was that if you told the patient or the patient's uh, uh, health advocate, health surrogates uh, about this, there would be a reduction in the amount of care. But it turns out that a very, very high percentage of people either want to play the odds that they're the 5% that's not going to die or can't bring themselves to say that about Aunt Bertha. You know, like, okay, yeah. well, then let's not do anything. Well, it's it's a big decision, right? And it's often made in a very um, emotional and traumatic moment. It's not like you can think about this for a long time. I mean, what you often see is people who've thought about it and say, you know, I really don't want that. In the moment, maybe have are uncertain or there's, you know, they're um, not conscious and so kids have to weigh in. It's a huge responsibility. Uh, you know, we, we talk about um, in advance giving people a better idea what it's like to be in an intensive care unit how traumatic it is. And great, you know, if you're going to recover and you have a high likelihood of recovering, it's it's certainly worth it. They, there are certainly amazing things that can be done. But, um, you know, it is at a cost, and I'm not now talking the, 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 the dollars and cents cost. Um, it's at an emotional cost. Um, it's painful. 
Um, it often leads once you're in there for one intervention after another after another. It's very hard to stop once you're on that conveyor belt. And there's the societal money cost, which um, is getting harder and harder to ignore as we move towards um, 20% of our GDP being spent on healthcare without better results than the rest of the world. Right. So um, I think one of the things that there kind of isn't, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think for the most part, in particularly in hospital settings, uh, there's a term that I kind of developed over my own experiences dealing with this with my parents, uh, what, what I call the circuit breaker. So uh, you bring somebody who's in, in the final stages of some kind of terminal illness to a hospital, they can wind up in the ICU, as you say, a very uncomfortable and brutal uh, place. Uh, maybe it would make more sense to divert them towards palliative care, or they they can get into a cycle where they're in skilled uh, nursing and then being rushed by ambulance to the hospital to treat some, you know, uh, some some infection that they, they suddenly got and then back to palliative care, back to skilled nursing and then back and forth and back and forth. And there really isn't anybody whose job it is in some of these situations anyway to say to the patient or the patient's family, you know, we I, maybe we just need to sort of break this cycle a little bit and maybe it makes some sense to think about palliative care. I mean, does that does that exist anywhere in this process as you've studied it? Well, it, it does exist. I mean, there certainly are geriatricians and uh, palliative care specialists. Um, there are too few of them. And they're not kind of naturally brought into this cycle mm -hmm. often. So, um, you know, those are those are that's one of the big issues, I think, that we haven't figured out. We figured out how to reimburse really well for doing things, for doing the test, for doing the procedure. We haven't figured out well how to reimburse and how to compensate both emotionally and, and uh, financially those people who have spent years just kind of sitting by the bedside and talking to people and working through these decisions and maybe helping people make wiser decisions for themselves and their family. Um, you know, I, I think it's a sad comment that many of the, the fine geriatrics training programs in our country don't fill. It's not a very popular specialty. I mean, that's partly because it's difficult, but also partly because uh, we know it's not rewarded. It's not considered um, in high esteem within the medical community often. So it's it's tough, underappreciated work. So, you know, there there are many more proceduralists than there are geriatricians and palliative care specialists kind of pulling back from that kind of aggressive treatment. Right. So, And we have this um, terror, kind of a sociological and journalistic terror in this country about the terms like rationing care, uh, death panels. Thank you, Sarah Palin. Um, and, and so, you know, what that gets applied to, it seems to me, sometimes are situations where it would make some sense to, quote unquote, ration care. In other words, it would probably make some sense to say to a patient or to the patient's family, you know, you know, this patient is going to live another three, four, five weeks. It doesn't make sense to do some sort of interventionist surgery right now. Um, but as you're yeah. saying, the reimbursement structure is almost a little bit more in favor of that than saying ah, palliative care time. 
Yeah, and you know, when people bring up rationing in the U.S. and fears that we're going to lead to that this is all going to lead to rationing, um, I like to point out that that we have so much in the way of excess procedures, excess treatment, excess testing that we're we're like way away from anything that might remotely be called rationing. We're really at at a stage where we need to rationalize what we do at the end of life, and you know. Yeah, like miles down the road, we might have to make some decisions that look like rationing, but we're not even talking about that now. We're talking about, to me, eliminating those tests, those procedures, those interventions that everyone would say are just not a good idea. And people say, well, what's the harm? You know, we put in a pacemaker, you know, it doesn't really. Guess what? Um, you know, things go wrong when you put in a pacemaker and in in, in, sometimes in a person where it's not appropriate. Or maybe, as in uh, some cases we've heard about, you'll put in a pacemaker for someone who doesn't want their heart shocked. Okay, you know, how did that happen? Well, it's because we have this do-something impulse. Um, uh, we are talking to Elizabeth Rosenthal right now. Her book is An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How, how You Can Take It Back. Uh, we wanted to uh, hear from somebody in the more of the hospital environment. Uh, joining us right now is somebody, um, by the way, again, another moment of transparency. I have been his, patients, uh, his patient once upon a time, Dr. Rocco Orlando, uh, Chief Medical Officer at Hartford Hospital. Uh, welcome to the conversation, sir. Great. Good to be here. Um, and great to have this conversation. Um, so, yeah, from a hospital point of view, maybe you can just sort of talk generally about how you see this. I mean, a patient may come in the door uh, who's effectively in the end stage of life. How does the hospital communicate with the patient and or the patient's caregivers about what the choices are? So we entirely, I mean, I, hearing this conversation and where you've been, I entirely agree that uh, we, we do too much. We, uh, our impulses to intervene, uh, and at many times we need to slow things down and pause and really reflect on what we're doing. And so it's a tough situation. Uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a surgeon, I've been in the ER on many occasions where an elderly person comes in with a calamitous uh, problem, and you're looking at them, meeting the family, the patient for the first time, and you know that this is a story that's not going to have a happy ending. And you're meeting them for the first time, and you really have no idea of their history, their expectations, what their wishes were. And so we're trying to have those conversations, even at those challenging and difficult times, uh, to avoid uh, that long stay in the ICU uh, that still ends up with the, with the story with the, with the unhappy ending. Um, you know, I had um, I have this idea. Both of my parents were being treated by uh, terrific doctors, but doctors kind of of my parents' generation, so to speak. Uh, and uh, um, I remember going to my father's doctor and saying, I think it's time for hospice. And, you know, can we start talking about that? And he said to me, um, uh, he, he said, well, I always feel like when you even say that word hospice to a patient, it's like a death sentence. And I said, well, no, my father's dying. <laughs> <laughs> He's already got a death sentence. Uh, the question is, like, how are we going to deal with this? And, and, and so I have this prejudice, Dr. Orlando, that maybe older doctors just like they don't even really understand that whole world of hospice and palliative care and when to kick it in. How good are the medical schools now at churning out new cohorts of doctors who, who can see it better? 
also palliative care, palliative medicine is really part of our curriculum uh, for our medical students, for our residents, so that I think that it's there. And I think you, you know, I'm not sure that it's necessarily age. Uh, there are uh, physicians of that generation who, based on their own life experiences, uh, might not have uh, have moved away from that interventionalist approach. So I, so I think it varies uh, what, what you encounter. We've made very significant investments in palliative medicine and really trying to extend it so that we have the ability to get those folks who are experienced in having those tough conversations into our emergency departments. They're already in, in our intensive care units. And it's it's really very important, and they can then teach the clinicians who are not quite so used to having these conversations with what are the what are the right ways to raise these tough issues. Right, uh, Elizabeth uh, Rosenthal. I heard you chuckle a little bit when I told that story. Right, you can and you can set up a, some great systems for this, but then s- human beings have to use these systems. And I would imagine, Elizabeth, that sometimes nobody wants to be the first person to say hospice. Well, you know, I worked in an ER before I became a journalist, and, and you know, there, there, this was a common problem. People would come in an extremist, and, um, you know, you, you try your best to say, uh, <laughs> you know, you may not – if this and people often say, if, if I were your mother at that time now, you know, <laughs> I'm a different generation, but would you want this? And, and that's a hard thing to answer, and particularly in a patient you don't know. So I, I, I think there's been – training um, on this over the years. It's just a really hard thing to do in that moment of extreme stress. And I think the groundwork has to be laid long before the palliative care specialist comes in with that discussion, you know, and and it's really hard and it's not compensated. And it particularly, you know, in an era where doctors complain uh, rightly that they're, they have less time to spend with patients, they're filling out all this stuff on the computer. You know, you don't have a first conversation about palliative care or you're dying, you know, while you're looking at a computer screen and uh, checking a bunch of boxes. So we, we in many ways have moved to a system where the people who should be starting this conversation, which are the people, uh, the doctors who've known you maybe for, for um, years, are, are less and less able to do so. You know, um, Dr. Orlando, nationwide, are, are there sort of business considerations that drive any of this? I mean, I'm thinking of hospitals that invest in incredibly expensive, high-tech equipment, high-tech pr- procedures. These procedures need to be used in order to be amortized successfully. So you've got a patient who comes in and maybe is a little bit on the bubble. Um, is there any incentive to say, is there anybody in the hospital saying, oh, no, just give them that treatment. We have that treatment. It's there. It's reimbursed. Uh, let's do it. Yeah, I don't believe that I've ever seen that. Um, certainly in, in, in our part of the world here in Connecticut, I'm not aware of that. Now, I do think that the imperative, sometimes it is easier to do something than to do nothing. Uh, to do nothing requires a very lengthy conversation and engagement, uh, with, uh, with, often with a family. And sometimes the path of, of least resistance is the intervention. Uh, I don't think that is necessarily motivated by the finances, although they are aligned in that direction. Uh, so no, I, I really have not observed that here in Connecticut. Is is it for you as a doctor, just individually? I mean, you've kind of alluded to this throughout our conversation. Um, can can you have that conversation easily with the family? Well, not easily. Can you have that conversation with the family? Look, it doesn't really make any sense to go any further, even though you know uh, you, you may cherish the time that you're going to spend with with dad or whatever, or, or t- saying it directly to the patient too with your family. We can just make you really really comfortable, but we can't fix you. 
Yeah, I think you have to say you have to say more than that. Uh, and having been in that situation many times and had those conversations, you you have to say more. You have to really say if we go ahead and do this intervention, here's what it's going to look like. It's going to be a long stay in the intensive care unit, and it's going to be miserable. And should you make it to the other side and you get out of the intensive care unit, your life and the way that you function is not going to be what it was before that. Now the tough conversations in a crisis, which is why, uh, and Dr. Rosenthal had had this just right. You've got to back it up so that it's it's a conversation that's happening with, with our primary care doctors and even more important with our families. Do our families understand what we want uh, when if that crisis occurs? All right. Um, we're getting some calls here. I haven't even put out the phone number, but people are calling in. Um, let's take one call from Kathleen in West Hartford. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, how are you? Good. You're on the air. Well, I am a speech-language pathologist, and until very recently, I was working in geriatric and elder care. And I was one of three disciplines, speech-language pathology, occupational therapy, and physical therapy, that are expected to come in and do all this intervention, sometimes an hour of each discipline a day, with patients who are 90, 95 years old who have broken hips or acquired pneumonia. And I completely agree that there is a lot of overcare. And patients aren't educated on their rights to say no, and there's a lot of pressure on them to participate in all of these because that's how these facilities make their money. So it's not always an ethical push either. Um, Dr. Orlando, did you want to respond to that? Uh, I think if if it's happening just to churn the system, that's absolutely not the right thing. And that's something It's really about defining what are the goals of care, what's the desired of outcome, and is the treatment uh, that we're proposing going to get there? And in some of those cases, it's not, and we shouldn't do it. Elizabeth, one thing that I say, in, in, now that I have this bizarre career of giving a speech about this, <laughs> is that people think that end-of-life care or palliative care or hospice or advanced directives, they think of it as one decision. You're going to make you, uh, as a patient, and with your family are going to make a decision about whether in the future you want heroic measures taken or something like that. That's how they, you know, form it in their minds. And what one thing I say is, no, it's not one decision. It's like 50 decisions. It's some of the decisions that Kathleen is talking about right now. How much of this or that do you want? And, and Elizabeth, it seems to me that's a hard thing for us to prepare ourselves or another person for. It is hard, but lots, you know. So is so is bypass surgery. You know, I think, I, I think lots of things are hard. Um, this is emotionally hard rather than technically hard, right? So um, some hospitals I know are employing things called decision aids, where they'll say to patients, and of course this is not this doesn't help you when you're like wheeled into an emergency room unconscious, but when you're thinking, um, if you're late in life and and uh, thinking about a hip replacement, they'll. Give, go through the pros and cons in, in a very detailed way, um, just like Dr. Orlando was talking about. You know, this is how long you'll be in the ICU. Because you're this age, it might take you this long to heal. This is the amount of mobility you'll get back. And when patients are presented with that in more concrete terms, they can make much better decisions. You know, now it's just, yeah, I think you're a good candidate for a hip replacement, or maybe you should consider a hip replacement. Um, here are the consent forms, and and you know you're you're in the OR uh, in a matter of days. Now, you know, in in fairness, and I, I agree, I don't think this is motivated directly by financial considerations, but I do think once the financial considerations are there in the background, um, it does have a subtle effect. You know, the studies when they look at which areas of the country have high rates of MRIs, for example, 
it's the areas of the country that have a lot of MRI machines. So, you know, it's when when you equip to do something, when it's the practice pattern in your institution to do it, it's very hard to um, to break out of that mold. So it's kind of a cultural change as well as a payment uh, payment reform. Um, we're we're going to wrap up this segment right here, but I want to give Dr. Orlando one more chance to talk a little bit. It does seem, though, as we're talking about this, that maybe one of the fallacies is to reduce this whole thing to ones and zeros. And it's really hard to do that when you're talking about human beings. You know, a medical social worker or, or a doctor can come to uh, a patient and the patient's family and say, here are all the options and here's, you know, here's what the downsides are and here here's what some of the potential upsides are. Uh, and no matter how you spell that out, how carefully you spell that out, different people are going to say it differently and different hearers are going to react differently to it. Some families are going to say, thank you for giving me a realistic picture of whether it makes sense for dad to get a hip replacement at this moment. And some people are going to say, are you trying to tell me that my father doesn't deserve a hip replacement right now? I mean, we're all human beings, right? We're going to react differently. We're absolutely going to make different decisions. That 90-year-old who has a cancer diagnosis, uh, uh, most will decide not to uh, undergo aggressive, uh, potentially painful chemotherapy, but there may be a few high-functioning, motivated people who may elect that. We're not all different, and we're going to make different decisions with the, with the same data set. All right, we're going to take a break here. Uh, thanks very much to Dr. Rocco Orlando, Chief Medical Officer at Hartford Hospital. Um, we're going to continue with this conversation, add a new voice to it. Elizabeth's going to stay with us for a few more minutes, too. We'll be back. And we're back. We are talking about the economics of dying, uh, which I realize is maybe... I should also tell you that. Obviously, you're used to hearing a different kind of show this, uh, on a Friday from us. Uh, we usually do a much more lighthearted show called The Nose, where we talk about culture. For complicated reasons, we had to move that to Wednesday this week. So we're maybe doing sending you into a weekend with slightly more somber thoughts. Although, you know, honestly, if you think about this stuff and talk about this stuff... Uh, and I personally hate thinking about it and talking about this stuff, but it gets a lot, a lot less scary when you do talk about it and get it all out on the open. So uh, Elizabeth Rosenthal is still with us, journalist, editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, former physician, author of An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became a Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Joining in, uh, me in studio is Joe Sacco, chief medical officer at Connecticut Hospice and assistant clinical professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine. Um, Joe, and we, we met the, the, the last, the first time I gave this speech that I've referenced. And um, one thing that I can tell that I've been doing all the way through the show, uh, it's a mistake I make all the time, is pretty much using palliative care and hospice interchangeably. And they're not, right? Yeah, that's correct. And I just want to say thanks uh, for having me. Uh, you know, I'm a real fan of your show in NPR, so in WNPR. So thank you again. Uh, yeah, I think it's really important, you know, to try not to use the phrases palliative care and hospice and end of life in the same sentence. Really, Palliative care is a, you know, recognized medical specialty. People are boarded in this. And really, our job is to work with people who are diagnosed with serious illness, but who are not necessarily at the end of life. So we can really help people to understand their choices for care. 
you know, people may not understand what it means to have chemotherapy or radiation or surgery and so forth. And a lot of our job is to inform people and to help them make choices that really comport with their wishes and beliefs. So we have no problem with the idea of someone who's very seriously ill seeking the very kind of high-tech care, aggressive care and expensive care that we're talking about. Uh, you know, that, that could very much benefit them. Uh, you talked about going to the bathroom earlier and hearing fresh air. Uh, there was talk about the movie The Big Sick, in mm-hmm. which, you know, a young woman who is very seriously ill is put on life support, and here she is on the radio. You know, they, they made her better. So we have to be cautious in understanding that there are times when these interventions don't help and, and times when they do. But as palliative care, we help people make those decisions. We help with things like pain and shortness of breath and nausea and that sort of thing. And we help them all through the spectrum of illness, hopefully until either they get better, hopefully, or if they don't get better sort of toward the end of their life, where now we're going to help them more and more and more seek out the kinds of comfort measures or even the election of hospice that may, again, sort of comport with their wishes. If people... Our job really is to make sure that people understand the consequences of their decisions, that they understand their choices from the most aggressive to the least aggressive, so they don't get blindsided when they wind up in the ICU not really knowing what that meant and not really knowing that maybe for them that the ICU was not going to benefit them. So, yeah, and Elizabeth Rosenthal, one of the things that uh, I think maybe we, we need to even make clear, I was really geeking out today on public health studies about this, uh, and one that I saw, um, uh, it sort of uh, looked at the expense, the amount of money spent on the 5% of the of the patient population, just generally speaking, that, that, that has the highest medical cost in any given year. It was 2011. And it turned out that people in the last year of life were a rel- relatively small percentage of that. I think it was 11%. But the, the bigger percentage, well, one of the two bigger percentages, was people who were just sick for a really long time. And I think, you know, in 1918, it was sort of, wow, grandpa doesn't look so good. And then, you know, he kills over and it, it, that's pretty much it. But we now live in a world where diseases go on for a long time. And I guess, Elizabeth, what I'm really asking is, um, has our medical model uh, managed to map itself very well onto that phenomenon? Uh, Not really. I mean, it's hard to map. Well, I I, I guess the thing is, fundamentally, that's really a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's a good thing that kids with hemophilia are not dying young and... um, you know, having joint destruction because they can now get clotting factor, even though that clotting factor um, for for reasons that are very complicated and a lot have to do with business um, may cost a million dollars a year for their entire lives. They are, you know, a lot of these long-term treatments are very expensive and amazing in their ability to prevent disability and death. So, you know, we have to appreciate that that's the cause of a lot of these expense problems. Um, the problem, of course, is it, it doesn't solve. We don't have an answer for that now. So how do we deal with that? Um, no one would suggest in a lot of these chronic diseases that are so expensive that we avoid treating them or, you know, we're, they're going to make a decision not to treat. So some of the expense is inherent in the progress of our medical system. And that's the big expense in our country. That's not something that palliative care helps, that better decision-making helps. Um, it's something that we have to deal with through um, market mechanisms or regulation or government intervention. Um, but And we're not dealing with it. 
So, Joe, that one of the one of the things that we're struggling to unpack is what does better decision making mean? Right. You, you need a whole bunch of information to make good decisions and then a way to make that decision. Right. Well, so, you know, I think that I think that better decision making, you know, in, in the in the case of the sort of increasing burden and cost of people with chronic illnesses who has who, as Elizabeth points out, really do benefit from these high-cost interventions, you know, that, that's a very difficult matter. Uh, you know, from my perspective as a palliative care practitioner, and especially, again, not wanting to conflate palliative care with the end of life, but I think that, you know, part of the problem is that there are, unfortunately, there are financial incentives in, in medicine uh, that promote, as, as she said earlier, that promote doing more and more and more and more as the end of life approaches. Um, you know, because those interventions reimburse more. And, you know, the truth is, is that it doesn't take a whole lot of time in an ICU working in an ICU to understand that there are people in the ICU who just are not going to benefit it. You know, people who are terminally ill, no matter what we do, no matter how much respirator support, no matter how much in the way of antibiotics, no matter how much dialysis and so forth, these people will not benefit. But unfortunately, this, these interventions are very well reimbursed. And for a hospital, you know, in a sense, I appreciate what Dr. Orlando said earlier, for a hospital, in a sense, to sort of do the right thing and bring palliative care into the ICU where, you know, sort of a real heart-to-heart conversation can be had about, you know, do you want to go forward with these aggressive interventions that really aren't going to help your dad to get better? Or do you want maybe to consider a more symptom management approach, or even to take your dad off of life support, that, you know, those hospitals that are increasingly extending those choices to people sometimes can take real financial hits for doing so. Uh, you know, if, if, if Medicare was to turn around, you made mention of the Apache score earlier. If Medicare was to say, you know, if the likelihood of a patient's discharge from the hospital alive in 30 days, and I'm just talking about alive, I'm not talking about the quality of life. If that likelihood is less than 5%, we're not paying a quarter of a million dollars. You know, you can bet that ICU beds would close down across the country. Now, if on the other hand, Medicare came out and said, you know what, we recognize that things like taking people off of life support is a valid way and an ethical way and, and a kind way of managing people at the end of life. So we're going to recognize that and we're going to start to pay doctors to do that. And we know that it takes a lot of time and skill to do that. You know, how long do you think it would be before a congressman was, you know, on the floor of Congress yelling about how Medicare was, you know, paying doctors to kill your grandmother? You know, so it, it, there's a there's a huge number of, of disincentives and politics involved that interfere with and that are barriers to making these choices. You know, I'm sorry, I just, the last thing I want to say is, you know, people always talk about how Americans don't want to talk about dying. And, you know, I, I find that's not true. I find that when I sit with people and I'm able to convey information to them in an empathetic way, in a clear way, at the end of those conversations, by and large, people are grateful. And they say, Doc, you know, nobody's told us what's going on and we're really grateful you did. So we can decide what we want to do now. So it's a it's a complicated matter, right? I'm very comfortable talking about other people dying, but not me. Um, so Elizabeth, I know you have to go. I'll just let you have whatever last word here uh, y- you want to put in based on what we've said so far. Well, I think uh, one thing that we we we've come around to now is talking about the narrative and how important it is. You know, in this country, because of the politics, when you talk about. Um, Paleation, when you talk about end of life, even as separate things, everyone moves straight to, uh, you know, 
death panels, rationing. And I, I just want to say again and again and again, we are so far away from that. I think what all of us today have been talking about is not rationing. It's allowing people to make rational choices. It's about not doing things that if we had the time to talk to people and explain, many people wouldn't want done because they're not useful things to do. There are things that no one recommends, um, no guideline recommends, but yet they're done, um, you know, up the wazoo in this country because we don't, you know, that's our political narrative. It's our economic um, model for medicine, and and it's our culture, and all of those things have to change, I think, to make this better. Um, Elizabeth Rosenthal, author of An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Great book. Everybody should get it. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me again. Okay. Um, very quickly before we go to break, just to sort of button one last thing onto what you guys are saying. Look, obviously, um, there are there's a politics to this, as you say, and and, and an economics to it too. Um, there are lobbyists in Washington for all kinds of medical technologies and medical interventions and drugs and stuff like that. And and then there are commercials, you know. And you know, if, if you watch like CBS Sunday Morning, pretty much all you see are these very well produced pharmaceutical commercials. And there's I don't think. Joe, ever been a commercial where somebody says, ask your doctor if nothing would be appropriate for you. Uh, ask your doctor if just keeping you comfortable <laughs> would be appropriate for you. I mean, there's a way in which we're being marketed to the opposite of the way you're talking about. That's absolutely true. I mean, again, you know, our culture is oriented toward intervention and oriented toward the, you know, the next and best pill. But, you know, it is true that, uh, you know, it's not really doing nothing is going to be the right thing for you. It's, it's really more about real orienting your care to maximizing the quality of your life until your life is over. And, you know, the medications that we have to do that have been around for a long time. They're of proven efficacy. They're, you know, they're not new and sexy. They're not expensive. And so you're not going to see advertising about that. All right. We're going to take a quick break. I think it's important also to talk to somebody uh, just out there in the patient community or family of patient community who had an experience with all that. That's what we're going to do. Joe Sacco is going to stay with me and we will be back. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Elvis Presley. On Monday, we revisit our conversation about the Hartford Convention. And now, back to Colin. All right, so we've been talking about the economics of dying, but also just about all the different choices that have to be made and whether we know as much as we need to know uh, as we make them, whether we wish maybe ultimately somebody would have told us one more thing that we didn't know. Uh, with me in studio is Joe Sacco, Chief Medical Officer at Connecticut Hospice and Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine. Now joining us uh, by phone is James Kim. Uh, his father was a patient at Connecticut Hospice. Uh, just to give you the background, his father recently died uh, in 20, in September of 2017, after being diagnosed with cancer uh, in 2013, uh, in, in the intervening time, there was a liver transplant. Uh, things obviously did not go as well as might have been um, uh, hoped for. So um, I guess, James Kim, I'm going to ask you a very open-ended question, which is, as you get a chance to tell your story, your father's story today, what is the thing that you want people to know about your experience and his experience going through all this? 
Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so I think um, for the majority of my dad's life after the diagnosis, um, I'm so grateful for our oncologists and all of the sort of the curative approaches that they took in making sure that the cancer um, was something we could beat. But um, like you said, after the transplant, a few weeks later, we found out that, um, you know, I got a call saying there are a few tumors in the lymph nodes right outside the liver. So you know that this means that we got that transplant a little too late. Um, so here on out, everything that we do is going to be palliative and it's going to be meant with the intent of buying your father more time. Um, and so I just assumed without asking for um, kind of what their idea of palliative care was, but I, I assumed that throughout the entire four, two years after the terminal diagnosis that we were kind of delivering palliative care. And it was only until meeting Dr. Sacco um, at the later part of my dad's life that I realized, oh my gosh, you know, I think we've been doing good by dad, but um, I think we weren't really informed about how much we could have done to make him comfortable. Yeah. Do you want to sort of look, look, at, look through the other end of the telescope at this? Yeah. So uh, th- thanks so much, James. I, I really, I'm really uh, grateful for your comment and it's, it's great to talk to you here on the air. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I felt about the interactions that I had with you and your brother and your mom and, and your dad when, when he was at, at hospice in Brantford was that, you know, your family and, and, and your dad still were not clear on what the options were for him. You know, is, is there a possibility he could recover from this? You know, should we take a more comfort-oriented approach? You know, what are our options? What are the outcomes going to be? And I think that, you know, what I'm saying in terms of what sort of palliative care really is, and it's something that we're trying to expand at Connecticut Hospice, is really to help people understand what's going on and to help them understand what their choices are. And, you know, I, I can ask you, but I felt that that process really helped you and your family to develop some peace about the choices you made. What I regret is that it took that long for you and your family really to fully understand what was going on and what your choices were. And, you know, I understand that the oncologist did an amazing job of prolonging your dad's life and of applying, you know, high-tech care that really did benefit him. But it seems that part of the piece that was missing was really including all of you in a sort of, you know, with your eyes wide open, making decisions about what was next, with a full understanding of what was happening. I mean, I seem to remember you're telling me that one doctor told your mom that your dad was going to be back to playing golf, you know, and I think that that was patronizing and it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really the kind of clear and open communication that that not only your family, but that everybody who's seriously ill deserves so that they can make their own choices. You know, we only have a few minutes left here, James. I, I want to get some more uh, sense from you about, I don't know, maybe what some of your regrets are. I'm assuming that if you're traveling back and forth to Sloan Kettering with your dad, you're maybe having some arduous days that that could have been avoided and, and maybe would have given you guys more time to, to be a, a, a semi-normal family. Right. So towards the end, I, you know, I, I witnessed the difference between um, treating the disease and treating the patient. And for anyone in my shoes, I would advise them to please seek out the perspective of both curative and palliative care doctors at the same time, because those approaches are very different, um, but they don't necessarily have to be in conflict. And one thing that I kind of lament is that 
we met Dr. Sako so late in my dad's life. But um, what he was able to do was he gave my dad agency, um, control over the terms in which he wanted to end his battle with liver cancer. And so, you know, that last week, my dad had clarity of thought. Um, he was free of pain and he was surrounded by people who loved him. And I think even as his body was being betrayed by the cancer, we could still recognize him because Dr. Sacco was able to keep his personality and his spirit intact. And so I think being able to give that proper farewell was a huge gift. And I think for anyone in my shoes, I urge them to make sure that as unpleasant as it is, as sad as it is, to be prepared for that situation and to know that um, passivity is not your only option and that you should always seek out um, multiple perspectives. James, did you find, we only have about a minute or so left, but did you find that at least among some of the people that you might have talked to, not in the medical community necessarily, but all the people who just share in the story of your father and his death, that hospice maybe like has a has a stigma attached to it, that there are some people who still think, fight, fight, fight. What do you mean, hospice? Are you giving up on your father? Were there some people who just kind of couldn't swallow that word? Right. So one thing that I learned very early on was that letting go should never be conflated with giving up. And I was lucky to have people in my life who had their family members treated at Connecticut Hospice. And they said, honestly, it's the best thing you can do for your family and for yourself and to avoid a lot of trauma and suffering. Because we were watching my father throw up water, much less be able to eat food. And we're just going we feel helpless. And at least with Dr. Sacco and the amazing team there, they were able to take care of my father. And, you know, he was joking even during the last week there, he had a sense of humor. And um, for us, thankfully, we never like encountered the stigma. And I'm glad we didn't. All right, we're going to have to stop it there. You've been listening to James Kim, whose father was a patient at Connecticut Hospice. You've been listening to Joe Sacco, Chief Medical Officer at Connecticut Hospice, Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan. I am lucky to have Betsy Kaplan as my producer just flat out in any way. But she's also a nurse. So um, it also it helps to have somebody who knows a little bit of her way around medicine, has her own ideas about this stuff. That's why we're able to do a show maybe uh, of this level of sophistication. It certainly doesn't have anything to do with me, I can tell you that. Uh, anyway, we'll be back, uh, I keep thinking it's uh, not Friday, but we'll be back with a, a rebroadcast on Monday and then with a live issue, uh, edition of our Scramble show on Tuesday.